If you have your Bible, turn it to Revelation 6. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in front of you, or maybe you need to open your app on your phone, but go to Revelation 6. Revelation 6. It's the last book in the Bible, and we are in chapter 6. Here we've spent two chapters in the throne room of heaven. Ones that were so joyous and magnificent and, and kind of reminded of what we just sang, right? Oh, He reigns and He, he rules and, and they're saying He is worthy. And that shifts today. The worthy one is worthy to a particular end and that is to rule and to reign. And we are going to see that in His ruling and reigning, there is a difficult part. For us to deal with the part that we don't necessarily like to think about, that God is the one who is gracious and merciful and slow to wrath. He is not willing that any should perish, we read earlier, but that all would come to repentance. And yet man in his sin persists. And many of us today may be wondering, how long, O oh Lord? Like the martyrs that we'll read about today, how long, O oh Lord? How long can this go on? How long can this continue down this path? If you are a righteous God, if you are a sovereign Lord, how long? And to the early church to whom this was written, and to the church through the ages, he says, I'll take care of it. There's coming a day when I will take care of it. And friend, It is ours to, as was said earlier, how should we live in this present age? To live godly lives of hope in Christ. And so as we read this passage today, we read it not with a sense of trying to just look at all the details, but in a sense of, Lord, what will you have us do in response to this reality? Read with me. Follow along as I read from Revelation 6, and I'll read the first and the first eight verses to begin with. Now I watched when the Lamb, who, which Lamb? The worthy Lamb. The Lamb who was worthy to open the, the scrolls. Opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures. Remember those four living creatures around the throne, right? If you don't, then go back and review. Say with a, a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked. And behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed with him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beast of the earth. Let's pray as we dig into God's word. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, we come to these verses wanting to learn and to see what you'd have us see. We pray, God, that in the end, the result would be that you inspire worship in our hearts. The worship, that worship of the worthy Lamb would direct us in our lives to live holy lives, but Lord, also to live lives to proclaim the name of the one who is worthy, that others might have the hope of salvation through Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've shifted from this joyous, glorious throne of worship 
But I would argue that the worship continues. It's unceasing. In the midst of what we're reading now, the worship goes on around the throne. As we read those verses, it said it it continued. It was unceasing. So that worship continues around the throne. For the worthy one, all that he does is righteous and good. Even when we read things like this, right? And at this point in your study, you might be wondering, I'm starting to think about some of those things I know about Revelation, and and I'd kind of like to know where they fit, right? I'd like to sort of know exactly what's going on. Well, we can't tell you exactly all that's going on because I'm not God, and we've been trying for a couple of millennia to figure out all the details, right? But I do think it's important that we address a couple of things. You might be asking, where does the rapture fit? You might also be wondering, what is this tribulation thing that we're, that gets referenced every now and then? So I want to take a few minutes as we begin our sermon before we dive into this to just talk a little bit about those two things. There are three different views, and you could argue there are, there are more, but for those who believe in, an, in a literal rapture, um, there are three different views, and I want to address one of them today, and that is the pre-tribulational rapture, because in this place, between beginning of four and six, is where we would see that pre-tribulational rapture. Tribulation, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Okay. There's another view that is the mid-tribulational rapture. And then finally, a post-tribulational rapture. And you say, well, first of all, I don't even, I'm a visitor here today, and I don't even know this rapture thing you're talking about. Are you talking about someone who's really caught up in something, like really into it? Well, you got it almost right. They are caught up. And this, the picture is that of one being taken up to be with the Lord. Okay. And so the pre-tribulational rapture view has a few arguments that would be given um, that, that sort of are the basis for what they believe. And by the way, we're not going to go through all of them. We're going to hit a few of them. And, and you'll be like, well, but what about this one? What about this one? That's not why we're here this morning. OK, but I do think it's helpful to at least give a little bit of an understanding and, and so one argument is from the outline of the book itself. And we're using some some information that was shared by Dr. Keith Kunda, who was uh, here in central Indiana, wrote a book on Revelation, and I think it's helpful. So one argument is the outline of the book itself. And in this argument, at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, the idea is that we passed the church... Um, we passed the church age when we entered verse 1, and, and we'll look more at that in a minute. But the church is not mentioned again until Revelation 19. So many would see that that would give some evidence that the rapture happened there. Second, 1 Thessalonians is another place that describes this restrainer or Holy Spirit being taken out of the way. We'll talk about that a little bit today. And if the Holy Spirit is not present and working as he is in the church today, then the church would not seem to be present. Without God's supernatural intervention, if there's no restraining force against evil in the world, then frankly, all hell would break loose tomorrow. And we're going to see in this very chapter, that's, that's kind of what happens, right? Third, Revelation 3.10 speaks of those who have kept the word of Jesus being kept from the hour of testing. We alluded to this when we went through that passage, that there were a couple of perspectives. One is that that church, to whom it was written, would be kept. And second, that they had a a future-looking view. And many would see that that is at play here, that the pre-tribulational rapture means that God would come, take up His children before this tribulation begins, and keep His people from growing through That tribulation time. Over and over again, we're told to be ready, to be alert, to be watchful for what we call the imminent coming of Christ. In other words, that it could happen at any time. Um, We see that in Matthew 24, Mark 13, 1 Thessalonians 5, James 5. That only makes sense if there is nothing remaining needing to be fulfilled that stands between now, our now, and the coming of Jesus. Okay? Finally, people with this view sometimes tell us that John represents the church. So think about this. John is reporting the seven letters, 
and then he's told to come up in, in this thinking, and then that he is then in heaven. Okay? So that kind of summarizes some of the arguments for a tree tribulate. I can't even, I'm going to say that so many times today and I'm getting tongue tied. For a pre tribulational rapture. Before the tribulation, people being caught up to heaven as believers. When we get to the midpoint of, of the tribulation, we'll address that one. We get to the, after the tribulation, we'll look at the post tribulational rapture. So, you might be asking, okay, we get the rapture thing a little bit. Hopefully that's not all you know about it, not all you want to know. We dig in a little bit deeper. But what is this tribulation thing? I can tell you about tribulation. I got it. Okay. Some of you are like, man, I, I've got a front row seat to tribulation. Okay. While some see the period as a period of time that is the current church age, they would say God never promised to keep us out of tribulation. Okay. As a matter of fact, he promised we would go through tribulation many, many times in Scripture. And they're not wrong, right? Um, the, the, we do. We go through much tribulation, we're told, um, before we reach heaven. And that is absolutely true. At the same time, many see the tribulation as a time of unprecedented global trouble which will last seven years. We see that referred to in Daniel 9, 25 through 27, and we call it the tribulation. Usually it's given a capital T just to differentiate it from, you know, just tribulation that we go through in life. We would say sometimes the, the second half of that we would call the great tribulation, which isn't so great for those that are going through it. It's given great as in it's even more gr- massive tribulation. So throughout the book of Revelation, you're going to see this same, the seven years referred to, that Daniel referred to, and it's going to fit into a number of times. Matter of fact, you'll see this seven year uh, time period in 11, 11, 2 and 3, chapter 12, verse 6, chapter 12, verse 14, and chapter 13, verse 5. And that period is described through Revelation 6 through 19, okay? Some of you are already going, okay, if I wanted to read a commentary, I'd go grab one and read it. All right. I think it's really important. We think it's really important that we understand that so that we understand the context um, of what we're talking about here today. We are we're at chapter six and the first three and a half years of what is called the tribulation would begin here and proceed through chapter nine. Okay. So, that's where we are. So, how should we study this? How should we study a chapter like chapter 6 and what is going to follow? Is our goal to just simply review all the possible interpretations for who this white writer is and what he's going to do? And, and is it to find out all the ways that war is going to happen and could potentially happen? And, oh, look, China. And, oh, look, Russia. And, oh, look. Um, Is that going to be what is most helpful for us as we study through this passage? Well, I love what William Mount says in, in his sort of review of that very question. The real question is that we need to start with is how would believers in the first century church have heard and understood it? How would they look at it? And we, some of you already, when I say that, you're getting a little nervous because you're like, well, he thinks this way about that view then. If, well, isn't that what we always ask about every passage of scripture that we study is how would the first century church, first of all, understood it? That's where we start because what was the authorial intent? What did the author want us to understand? Okay. Well, it should have been somewhat clear. Second of all, then we ask, well, then what should we understand? From it as well. Well, William Mount says it this way reviewing the various interpretations assigned to the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you've heard that reference, and that's what we just read about, tends to rob the contemporary reader of the dramatic nature of the vision itself. In other words, when we chase all these other things and and we're immediately drawn to all these different interpretations, we kind of miss the big picture. We kind of miss what the big point is. And It is good to place oneself back in one of the seven churches and listen to the visions as they are being read. Instead of discussing the probable significance 
of each of the four colored horses, those first listeners would have first recoiled in terror as war, bloodshed, famine, and death galloped furiously across the stage of their imagination. Part of our struggle is is that we are sort of deadened to such things. We have literally watched movies that are far more suspenseful and, and troubling than what is we see in these pages in our minds. But when you read this, and you read it with the understanding that this isn't just something that is written, this is something that is going to happen. Real people, real war, real famine, real sickness, Real death up to a quarter of mankind wiped out. That should cause us to go, Oh Lord, no! What? Why? What's going on? And we should, we should give us pause to look at this in a way that says, Lord, what, what would you have us learn? They would look to these words though, to some degree for hope. Like, Caesar and Rome are, are just coming down on them. They're, they're facing persecution. They're, tr- there's evil all around them. There's immorality all around them. And they would be saying, how long, O oh Lord? How long? Like us today, we may say the same. And this would actually provide comfort in their pain, confidence in God's righteousness, His sovereignty, and His rule. And in that way, this book delivers on every level. Because the Sovereign One is not detached. Warren Wearsby writes, as you study, keep in mind what, that John wrote to encourage God's people in every age of history. He was not only writing prophecy that would be filled in end times, but he was also writing great theology and dramatically revealing the character of God and the principles of His kingdom. These chapters describe the cosmic conflict between God and Satan, the new Jerusalem and Babylon, and no matter what key a student may use to unlock or understand Revelation, he cannot help but see the exalted King of Kings as he vindicates his people and gives victory to his overcomers. Since the church never knows when Christ will return, each generation must live in expectancy of his coming. Therefore, the book of Revelation must be able to communicate, communicate truth to each generation, not just to the people who, who will be alive when these events occur. All that, that's the longest introduction I think I've ever given to any sermon. But all of that, I think, should help us be able to move through this passage in a way that exalts the Lord Jesus, that we can continue in our worship of Him, while we also take hope in the fact that one day, one day, evil will be eradicated. One day, He will be seen by all for who He is, and we see that at the end of this chapter. So in Revelation 6, John reports the opening of six seals, there's seven total, but we're only going to get six today. There's only six in this chapter. You'll get, have to come back in a couple of weeks to get number seven. Because it's not dealt with till chapter eight. And this signals the beginning of the tribulation period. These seals closely parallel to what Jesus described in the Olivet Discourse. Matter of fact, there are three periods of, or three sections, if you will, of events that are part of the last of the last days. The first period was the period of false Christ. Wars, famines, pestilences, earthquakes and death called the beginning of birth pangs, Jesus called them in Matthew 24, 8. He talks about the period of the great distress or great tribulation in Matthew 24, 21. And then the period immediately after that great distress of those days when the sun, moon and stars will be affected and the Lord Jesus Christ will return. So that's going to parallel very much what we see in this passage today. Okay, As the first four seals are broken, we've got four horsemen that come galloping across our stage. Okay, And no literal horses, we're not into that here, but there are four powerful forces at work. And this imagery relates very much to a vision that Zechariah had in chapter 1 of Zechariah 
7 through 17. And it represents God's activity on earth and these forces that he uses to accomplish his divine purposes. So don't think of it as, oh, literally like a white horse is going to go all over the earth. And then there's going to be this red horse and then a black horse and then a pale horse. Okay, we're not talking about Clint Eastwood riding into town. All right. Um, for those of you, the I think only two of you even know what I'm talking about. Um, that was before most of your time. Uh, but the four horsemen are God's judgment being revealed against sin in the tribulation. These four horsemen flow together. You'll see that as one sort of one happens and then the other follows naturally on its heels. You see, you go from from conquest to war to famine to pestilence and then death. And in this way, God is not just personally doing judgment, though he could just immediately strike down people. He, he does that. We've seen that throughout Scripture. We'll see that later. But here we, especially in the beginning of this, we see that it is the imploding of sin on itself. As mankind pursues sin and their depravity, they face one of the great judgments. And that is, here, you want sin? Have it and its consequences. Some of us have experienced that in our own lives. When we've pursued sin and we've seen the destruction that it brings in, into our own lives. But this is far greater than that. This is, this is Romans 1, but, but in an end times state. In Romans 1, we find that God gave them over. In in judgment, He gave them over to their sin. To do that which is wicked and evil. And He says, that's that's part of the judgment. Friend, if today you think you're getting away with something in your sin, and you think, nothing's happened to me yet, and you just keep going down there, let me tell you, that is deception. You think that you're getting away, but in the end, you're just gorging yourself on the very thing which in the end will be your own judgment. That's sin. For there's a way that seems right in demand, but the end thereof is death. We're going to see that depravity comes full circle and this theme is throughout the book where sin turns on itself and self-destructs. Once these forces are unleashed... We're going to see that they continue on through the tribulation and culminate ultimately at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first seal that is broken, we read, is the first horseman, the white horse of the deceptive conqueror. Now, some would suggest that this is Jesus Christ himself. He's on a white horse, right? He's going out to conquer. I have a couple of of, of problems with that. First of all, um, Jesus does come on a white horse. We're going to read about that in chapter 19. Okay? But he comes in a very different manner. Right? I see this as... uh, Here are the the two problems I have. First of all, he's carrying a bow and not a sword. Okay? Um, He's going out to conquer. We see that that Jesus comes with the sword of his mouth. The word also then for crown here that he has. This one is given a crown, by the way. He doesn't have a crown. He isn't wearing a crown. Like we're going to see Jesus is wearing diadems, multiple crowns, as it were. He's wearing because he has them, right? He has authority. That's the picture given. He has all authority, all, all, all sovereignty. This one is given a crown. And it's a crown called a Stephanos. My name's Stephen. means crowned one, all right? It's, I see no crown. I might have fallen down and broke my crown one or t- two or times, but, but that's a different story. This is a victor's crown, kind of like he's going out to, to conquer and win, but it's a temporary crown, not a diadem. Okay? So, as we see that, I, I agree with many theologians that this is the one that Daniel refers to in Daniel 2.21, um, or that Daniel refers to, I'm sorry, as the prince who will come in Daniel 9, 26 through 27. You see, this is one, this one per, that is, is raised up, if you will, or allowed to go out as the lawless one, is given authority. 
and Daniel does talk about that in Daniel 2.21, and he says that God is the one who changes times and seasons, he removes kings, and he sets up kings. He gives authority, but he takes them back out. This one is given such authority for a short time. This lawless one will do evil, and he'll lead in evil on a global scale. On a way that, that we see evil growing, we can begin to anticipate something of like this. I, I think that the early church maybe pictured Caesar, right? Because that was the grandest, biggest thing they would have been able to conceive. They would have been shocked to see the influence that people could have in our day immediately around the globe, right? And yet we, it's not hard for us to understand that as Second Timothy three thirteen says, that evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This one will be a master deceiver. And what is inherent in being deceived? You don't know you're deceived. You think you know. You think you're convinced. You're sure, right? But deception, by very definition, means that you are wrong. And people couldn't be more wrong when they fall in line behind this one. Are people easily deceived? Yes, other people are. If you go on the internet, you see other people are deceived all the time. This is a warning to us. This is a warning to any person to don't be deceived. Be on the lookout. Be warned that there is one coming who will play upon the desires of individuals and the world. And he will, he will deceive. And you won't realize you're deceived until it's too late. Otherwise, if, if people couldn't be easily deceived, then I want to know how this Nigerian prince keeps getting all of his money. Because clearly he's deceived a whole lot of people into thinking he really is a Nigerian prince, right? Again, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. You must not have email, right? But this one will come and he will conquer. He will, he will get a peace to be formed with Israel and with, among the nations. And this would have resonated, though, the, the manner in which he does this would have resonated with the early church, because they were familiar with Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. The peace of Rome wasn't that peaceful, because if you didn't get in line, you could be taken out. That's the peace. Everybody who stood up, take you out. That's the kind of peace we're talking about. And if you get out of line, you'll know it. You see, the work of Antichrist were present in John's day, But Revelation speaks that they will culminate in the work of a final, more severe, widespread influence of a global Antichrist. Here's what 1 John 2.18 says. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know now that it is the last hour. See, there are those out deceiving now and deceiving the, the, the world, and striving to even deceive the church. And sadly, some stand behind pulpits. And we need to be on alert. Be alert. Be awake. Be alert to the deception of the great deceiver and destroyer, Satan himself. So the activity of the first horseman, this one who comes to deceive and building these false victories that then are going to ultimately be turned against the world, the activity of the first horseman leads to the work of the second. The red horse of worldwide war. The picture we see is one of overwhelming bloodshed. As God removes peace, He gives this one permission to remove peace from the earth, revealing the true hearts of the earth dwellers and the rulers of earth, including that of the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians 2, 6-7 through tells us what happens when God withdraws His Spirit and His peace. And you know that, you know what is restraining Him, this lawless one that is, that we've been talking about, 
we see this in second, I'm sorry, second Thessalonians 2, 6 and 7. Says, you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of the lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Do you have any doubt about the desires of mankind for power, for rule, for money, and for progress? Can you imagine if God removed his spirit, withdrew his spirit, withdrew his church, and said, go? Have you ever seen a preschool classroom when there's no adult around? It's chaos. It's chaos. And don't we see the beginnings and rumblings of that? And we've been seeing it not just in our day. People have been seeing it for 2,000 years. That when given opportunity, oh man, wickedness will go, will burst out. I mean, you can look at it and think in your own mind through history of people and things and stuff that happens. And you're like, oh my word. What in the, how could that even be? How could that have been allowed through deception and through just pure evil? And friend, there's no doubt how easily how easily wars around this globe could stir up. And if you think that Russia and Ukraine are the only thing going on right now, you need to be awakened up. There are conflicts on just about every continent right now. There's stuff going on everywhere. And that's not just today. That's, that's just what, that's this world. And all it takes is for the Lord to withdraw His protection and His peace. And friend, there will be bloodshed like we've never known. And that's the picture that we see here. Like, man, he's really chipper today. Friend, I, I hesitate to even create any moments for laughter. Chris and I talked about this. Because this is real. And if it does not sober us, then we miss the point. War, sadly, often gives way to famine. And famine is what we see next in the third seal, represented by the rider of the black horse. You see, this third horseman is the the black horse of global famine. Black often alludes to famine in Scripture. You see it in Jeremiah 14, Lamentations 5. It's the color of gloom. It's the color of, of... of lamentation. It's the color of mourning. And that's what we see with this, this, this coming famine. In verse 6, we hear a voice from the midst of the living creatures, which can only be God Himself. And if you think back to the throne, the creatures stood around the throne, and from the midst of them would have been God Himself. And God mandates this. God says, this is how it will be. A quart of wheat for a denarius. Three quarts of wheat or barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. We see in the New Testament that a denarius is a standard daily wage for the common laborer in the first century. It was generally sufficient for about eight measures of grain. So with what is described here, this is not sufficient to sustain a family. This is not enough to keep your family alive. So clearly there's, there's something going on here that is beyond um, just a little bit of, of hardship. This is true famine. True death is going to happen as a result of this. But there's this interesting statement. Do not harm the oil and wine. There's a couple of thoughts behind that. First of all, that God, even in this, this horrific judgment, is withholding. He is still being merciful. And just time out on that. Isn't he being merciful today? Fritz read earlier about don't mistake God's withholding judgment as somehow his just, oh, it's, it's all okay. No. He is being patient towards mankind. He is withholding full judgment. Even here in the tribulation, He is withholding the full course of judgment 
That's yet to come. But it is a reminder that sin leads to judgment. And yet there's this also this perspective that there would be those who have. There are those who can't even buy a day's worth of food for their family. And then there's going to be people with oil and wine. There's going to be the haves and the have-nots. And those who, who are able to sit back and be sort of, in their sense, they're thinking, I'm going to be secure. I'm safe from what is to come. But there's more. You see, the third horse, the third horse of famine leads to the fourth. And the fourth horse, in the midst of, of the lack of nutrition, we see the pale horse of unprecedented death. I'm going to read this in verses 7 and 8. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed with him, or the grave followed with him. And that's, that is just a picture of what is, right? With death comes the grave. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beast of the earth. You see here in this death, it is building on what has already come. You already have heard of the sword, right? The, the war. You've heard of the famine. But death is involved in all of this. And with pestilence then, which is sickness, and even by wild beast on the earth. This color is the color of think of, of, a, of a pale corpse. Both the horse and the rider. Previously, we've been reading about the, the horses. Here we see that both horse and rider are the color of death. You see, the Lord is the one who holds the key to death in Hades. And it says here that he's given authority to this one. You read in Revelation 1.18 where it says, Behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Who is this one speaking? Well, if you go to chapter 1, you see that it is none other than Jesus Christ himself. So Jesus Christ himself gives authority for this to happen. And at this point you may be wondering, wait a minute, war? Famine? Death? Pestilence? That sounds like evil. Yeah, but you see, while it is the authority given, it, are, it is the forces of mankind that is carrying this garbage out. You see, one day, the righteous judge will be, have every right to judge and to cast into eternal hell. But here, he shows us once again that mankind, when given over to itself, just does what mankind does. And in the end... In the end, death is the result. These, you see war, a direct act of mankind, famine, the combined effect of war and drought, which it would be the act of God. Then we see pestilence, possible involvement of mankind through, just if you just want to imagine a little bit, even through biological warfare. Could be. But we see it could have a man, man's part but as we go through these, now we're starting to see more and more of God's part, right? War, man, the famine, result of man's decisions, possibly, partially, maybe because of drought, doesn't say. Here, we see pestilence, and it begins to make you scratch your head. But then wild beast. What in the world is with the wild beast? Are we talking about demonic beast? It says wild beast of the earth. So I would argue this is not demons. Um, this is... If God's withholding his peace, guess what? Wild beasts lose their fear. Gunner, all of a sudden, doesn't have peace anymore, right? Pastor Chris's dog. The, the, the beast of the earth have nothing to withhold them. And they are not lying down the lion with the lamb, but rather they are on the attack. Maybe they're facing famine and, and they need food too. In the end, these judgments commence here. They start here and they continue throughout this tribulation. And all four together kill about one-fourth of the world's population. There are about eight billion people on this planet today. When this happens, we don't know. But that would be two billion people. I can't even fathom billion. 
I can't process in my mind how much billion is. But two billion. Every person on earth would be affected in some way. From the midst of these judgments, we hear a different cry. And, and, and is no longer one of the living creatures saying, come and sending forth, but rather a voice from the midst of the creature, and not, no longer that voice from the midst of creatures, but the cries of the martyrs. And we read that in verses 9 and 11. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. See, for as long as there have been Christians, there have been those whose lives have been taken for the name of Jesus. And the ones who have been taken don't look and uh, don't look around and go, man, we're kind of a bummer for us. Man, it really stinks that we were martyred. But rather their heart cry is as ones in heaven is for the ones who are behind. Those ones who are on earth and are, who have, have enduring this and you say, wait a minute. If I'm a, if I'm to believe a pre-trib view, there's a little problem here. There wouldn't be any believers here. Gotcha. Okay. That, that is one, that is one of the, the arguments against, but come back next week and we'll talk a little bit more about that very thing. Okay. Um, and there, there will be those who come to Christ during that time period. If, 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 from a pre-tribulational view. But you see, these ones who were murdered by the world are calling out for God's judgment in the midst of the greatest judgment that this earth will have ever known. They want it want finally and forever settled that there would be no more pain, no more bloodshed, no more famine, no more death. And Revelation 7.17 7, says, that, that there are those individuals coming. And it says, I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. See, their, their cries aren't yet answered. They're not yet fulfilled. But there's a time coming. And he promises them, Hey, you are safe. You're safely home. I'll deal with it. And in the same way through the, through the ages, we as believers have cried out, Lord, how long? How long? You're worthy. We give you all honor and glory, but Lord, we struggle. We struggle to understand how a sovereign God could allow stuff like what's going on today. Don't you struggle with that? I do. Lord, if you're sovereign... Why would you not deal with this? This is so evil. This is so wrong. And then I'm caused to step back and look at myself and say, Oh Lord, thank you for your mercy. For Lord, if, if you did not have mercy on as you do, and I see it throughout the world, why would I experience mercy? For Lord, I'm a sinner. And I thank you, Lord, that you have delayed that our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers could hear the name of Jesus Christ proclaimed and that they too might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus and that they would know the forgiveness that comes and they would be numbered among those who are clothed in white around the throne room of heaven as the forgiven ones, the ones who will forever live with the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for delaying. Thank you, Lord, Though at times I don't understand, thank you, Lord, for your mercy. But it's not over. We read on through the rest of the chapter, verses 12 through 17, and it says, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being scrolled up, 
rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. It was flattened. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of one who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? We read here of the great shaking of the creation, a time in which the most expensive real estate will be a hole in the ground. You see, the fear will be so great that there is, there is just hopelessness worldwide. And no one will be exempt. That whole list that was given from rich to poor to slave to free, rulers and those under them, will all see the very stuff that they have worshipped shaken. All the real estate of the world will be flattened. And a sense of, this is where our hope is. We've lived as if this world was going to go on forever. Life was just going to proceed as we always thought it would. And God says, wake up. Wake up. Now we've shifted from the acts of mankind in war to what is fully, clearly, unmistakably the act of God. And he says, wake up. The great day of the Lord is at hand. We see this is, is referenced back in Joel verses 10 and 11, 2, 10 and 11. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Joel 2.31 says, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome, not awesome as we think of it, but awe-inspiring, terrible day of the Lord comes. And if you think, well, that sounds like just a bunch of prophetic hyperbole. Well, let's see what Jesus said. In Matthew 24, verses 29 and 30, he says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The one who was unseen will then be seen for who he is. The ones who have hoped in all that is seen will one day see the King of Kings in his glory and they will know that they stand without hope. Their only hope is to be covered, to be covered in caves, to be killed by a stone. And that will bring no hope. Everything that mankind has lived for will be shaken. What is saddening is this, that rather than worship, what happens? They flee. Does that remind you of the garden? And if the, in the garden, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they fled. And if in the end times when they fled from the presence of the Lord, let me be very clear, and in that last day, when mankind sees God in his glory, the Son of Man on his throne, and he wants to flee, then what should it tell us about the presence of God and how we ought then to live in this present age? Taking us back to Second Peter chapter 3, we should live godly lives in this present age. We should have a hope and a desire to make Christ known for why is he delaying his judgment. That people can come to Christ. Folks, do we love our community? Do we love our neighbors? Do we love our co-workers? Do we love our friends? Do we love our family? Then why do we remain silent? Why do we refuse to speak the name of Jesus Christ and share the gospel with those who are lost and perishing. And I say this to my own shame. 
friends, this day is coming. And if we aren't alive then, then that means that we'll have died in the meantime. Meaning that how many more will go without hearing the gospel? And this is not a, I'm going to guilt them into this. No, this is reality, folks. Reality of, why would I not want to tell a lost and dying world of the one who sits on the throne who, is, who was slain? That you might live. Friends, let's work while the day is present. For the time is coming when time shall be no more. Let's be faithful, faithful in the global work of the gospel. Just as one is coming to globally deceive, we need to be faithful in our local and global proclamation of Jesus Christ. It's, it can be as simple as a tract. It can be as, as, as simple as inviting someone over for tea. It can be it can be here. It can be in Utah. It can be around the world. But folks, let's be a people that are driven by the reality of coming judgment that we might make the beautiful, glorious, worthy Lamb known to the people around us. Let us hope in what is seen and eternal and make that known rather than to go on living in what is seen and passing. Friends, this isn't just some apocryphal literature. This is the Word of God. Let us then respond to His Word in, wor- in worship, both in our lives and in our deeds. Gracious Father, we are sobered by this today, and we should be. Modern Christianity is often just all about giddiness and, and really, frankly, just a lot of silliness. And Lord, we have joy. We have joy because of the hope that we have in Christ. But there are so many who don't. Sometimes we live as if we forget that. We forget that this is passing. And eternity is truly forever. And God, we, we confess before you this day that we want to have your love for our neighbors. We want to have your love for the people in our communities. We want to have your love for this this world in which we live. We want to be people who make the hope of Christ known. And Lord, if there's someone here today who does not know your hope, I pray that this sobering reminder would be a reminder to come unto him who gives rest, who gives forgiveness, who gives hope, and gives eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today, as you hear these words, I pray that if it's caused within you a sense of, of, of man, I, I, I need to know how to respond. Fritz will be down front. Elders will be at each of the doors. We'd love to talk with you. Call us this week. We'd love to talk with you more. Because this is a hopeful message. A message because the one who reigns is righteous and good. And he is holy. Let's run to him. Let's worship him together as we close. And may we then go out in the peace which he provides.